Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com, and if you want to contact me directly, you can do that via the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, or send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and want to help support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes search results and thus grow the podcast. Today on this week's episode of Anthology, I'll be discussing I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. It's the 15th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on January 15th, 1960. My bonus review for this episode is actually the original Planet of the Apes, which Rod Serling wrote a draft of before Michael Wilson did a rewrite of it, notably adding the courtroom scene as Wilson was a target of McCarthy's communist witch hunts in the 1950s. We'll get to all that in a bit, but for now, let's talk about I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. As usual, my episode summary and review of the episode will be completely spoiler-filled, so if you don't want to be spoiled on this episode of The Twilight Zone, please go and uh, watch it on either Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, um, and then come back and listen to the episode. So here's the episode summary for I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. A manned spaceflight with eight crew members crash lands on what the astronauts believe to be an unknown asteroid. Their expectations of survival or rescue are bleak. Only four of the crew survive... The commanding officer, Donlan, crewman Corey and Pearson, and a crewman who is barely alive. Donlan and Pearson are concerned about taking care of the injured crewman. But Corey, realizing water is in short supply, is only concerned with saving himself, setting himself at odds with Donlan and Pearson. After the injured crewman dies, Donlan has Corey and Pearson trek out into the barren desert to see if there is anything that might improve their chances of survival. Six hours later, Corey returns, but Pearson does not. Donlan calls Corey out on having more water in his canteen than what he left with and demands to know where Pearson is. Corey claims that he found Pearson dead and filched the water supply from his dead body. Donlan forces Corey at gunpoint to lead him to Pearson's body to see for himself. They find Pearson, still barely alive, who with his last bit of strength draws a primitive diagram in the sand with his finger and then dies. Corey confesses that he attacked Pearson earlier, and he then kills Donlan and sets out alone, confident that he will survive longer now that he has all of the water supply. Corey climbs a nearby mountain and sees a sign for Reno and then sees telephone poles, which were what Pearson had attempted to draw before he died. Realizing that they had in fact never left Earth and that he had killed his partners for nothing, Corey breaks down weeping. This episode stars... A uh, few central characters. Uh, first up is Dewey Martin as Corey. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in one episode of The Outer Limits. 
And he was really a familiar face in television in the 70s. He has a lot of different credits from uh, television in the 70s. He's, according to IMDb, he's still alive um, now. He's in his 90s. But his last acting credit was in 1978. And one of his big roles was in 1951's The Thing from Another World, which, of course, was um, remade by John Carpenter as The Thing. As Colonel Donlin in the episode is Edward Benz. Uh, this was his first of two episodes of The Twilight Zone. We won't see him again until season five's The Long Morrow. Uh, he was also, he has actually some really impressive credits. He was a, he played Juror Six in 12 Angry Men. That's one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, he played Captain Junket in North by Northwest. He also appeared in Judgment at Nuremberg and Patton. Uh, he was also in one episode of One Step Beyond. So eventually down the line when I cover that, we'll talk about him then. Uh, he also served in the U.S. Merchant Marine in World War II as a wireless officer. So that's interesting. And rounding out the cast of actors is uh, Ted Otis, who played Pearson. He's still alive. He's 80 years old uh, as of this recording, according to IMDb. His last acting credit, though, is in 1962, and he only had 13 credits. I'm not really sure what... Uh, what caused him to lose the acting bug, but apparently it happened uh, pretty soon after this episode of The Twilight Zone, which was his only episode of the show, and he would actually uh, also appear in one episode of One Step Beyond. Uh, and really, there's not really much info about him online that I could find. Writer for this episode, of course, is Rod Serling. It's based on the, a story by Madeline Champion. And this episode is really unique in that the genesis of this idea was from a party that Rod Serling was at. Um, he was at a party when he was approached by this woman named Madeline Champion who just said, what would happen if three guys landed on what they thought was an asteroid and it turned out to be outside of Las Vegas? And Serling was so taken by this idea that he paid her $500 on the spot and gave her an on-screen credit for having suggested the story idea. <laughs> um, it was the only uh, suggestion that ever was made into a script for The Twilight Zone. And knowing how prolific and popular uh, Rod Serling was, that's saying something because I'm sure that he just got bombarded with story ideas every day, probably. So it's really interesting that this, this one is the one that came through to actually make it onto the show. And it's a really intriguing story idea and worthy of the twilight zone director for this episode is Stuart Rosenberg. He directed three episodes of the twilight zone and his next one will be in season four in the episode he's alive. He actually won a directing Emmy for an episode of the courtroom drama series, The Defenders, and he would go on to also direct the Amityville Horror. And it's interesting because he actually also directed this movie in 1986 called Let's Get Harry. And he was uh, credited as, he used the pseudonym Alan, Alan Smithy for, for this movie, which of course is the pseudonym that directors give to a project that they don't want to have any part in. I guess at the time, uh, Variety had reported that director Stuart Rosenberg took his name off the credits, reportedly due to arguments during post-production. So here's my review of I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. Um, right off the bat, the first few minutes are pretty much all exposition from the perspective of mission control for this mission into space that the Arrow 
I think the Arrow One is taking. And this scene establishes that the Earth lost contact with the ship shortly after takeoff, and that uh, that they couldn't that they can't find the ship. Which that's all well and good, but my issue going into this episode from here is that we never see Mission Control again, and this just leads me to question whether the scene was needed. It kind of seems to set up the idea in the audience's mind that the that the spaceship did make it into space and that's that's how they um kind of solidifies that basic idea and sets up the ending reveal that they were on earth but i don't know it kind of seemed a little flimsy to me and when you compare it to an episode like when the sky was opened which had a strong efficient opening um it kind of made me wish that i shot an arrow into the air kind of followed suit maybe have just introduce us to the characters after they've landed um, or after they've crashed and kind of use that time, at least that three minutes that we would have saved out of mission control to kind of explore the characters a little bit more. Also, the next thing is that you can't think too hard about the logic of this episode. For instance, why would the astronauts think that they crashed on an asteroid when the gravity and atmosphere is exactly like Earth? I think that's more due to people not understanding space travel or or not having the knowledge that we would have today at that time, maybe, like the general population wouldn't know. So you can kind of get away with that kind of thing. Kind of the equivalent of Independence Day using a simple computer program to take out the aliens because at the time, like, Apple computers weren't that huge (laughs) or it wasn't like an everyday piece of technology that everyone has. I don't know. But also it also raises another question that if you think too hard about the episode, how did Mission Control manage to lose them? And maybe in that case, maybe that's why um, the first few minutes of exposition is necessary. But I, I don't know. It just, I didn't really have a problem with it. And in, like I said, you can't really argue the logic of this episode. So um, for just sake of argument, I will leave that be. But I still did have just a tiny bit of a problem with that opening scene. But once we actually get to Death Valley, as it, where it was shot, um, the scenes with the astronauts after they've crashed on the quote-unquote planet, I don't even need quote-unquote because they are on the planet, but the mystery of Corey's psyche is developed really well. And his panic about the water made me just not know what to expect from him at all. And that was so satisfying to me. Um, and, and Corey's unpredictability is it's really hammered home when Donlin asked Pearson, asks uh, Pearson what happened to Corey during the crash. Cause Pearson was, was nearby and Pearson's response is just, he says that nothing happened to him. Um, he was just as, he was just as normal as ever. And this establishes that Corey's behavior is solely situation driven in that that alone makes it all the more unnerving and mysterious to me because this whole episode is about humans acting kind of instinctually and having Corey be this, antagonistic threatening presence and have him only be acting out of instinct because he's in the situation instead of having like an, an infection or some kind of some kind of injury or impairment but have him do have him do this out of uh, in reaction to nothing is just fantastic uh, writing and fantastic characterization and it really pulled me into the journey of these characters 
and particularly of Corey. And I really liked Corey's attitude toward the dying shipmate. It it could be considered just him being pragmatic and and him wanting to uh, conserve the supplies that they have because they are in this horrible situation from their perspective, and there's no way that they can be they can be rescued. It's even said that it takes I think four years for them to build that ship, so there's no way that they can feasibly or uh, that they there's no way that they could potentially survive in this. But it goes so far beyond that pragmatic nature into just complete a complete lack of compassion, and it plays up his um, survival instincts basically. And I just I I really liked that. And as a counterpoint to Corey's increasing insanity, basically, I I really like Donlin's commanding presence. I mean, he loses his cool a little bit. But for the most part, he's this take-charge-authority figure with a somewhat calm demeanor. And this is the type of performance and characterization that I love seeing in astronaut characters. Um, I liken it to George Clooney in Gravity a couple years ago. I love that character who is basically facing death, essentially, or a situation that is very conducive to their death and that could very easily lead to them dying. But he's doing it in such a cool, um, authoritative presence. I just, I really, I really liked that, and I like that that element was part of this story in this episode. And later on, when when Corey comes back and Pearson is gone, this is where the story like just takes a really creepy turn for me. And I just, I really was so invested in this in this episode. It was. It was kind of crazy. I was so into what was going on because when Corey comes back and Donlin questions him about Pearson, at this point in the story, I I had no idea if Corey was telling the truth or if he actually murdered Pearson or not. And Donlin's kind of makeshift interrogation of him is really enjoyable to watch, first of all, and it just showcases how... Donlin's steady hand is starting to crack in the face of Corey's growing insanity. And I just really appreciate the storytelling of this scene. And just, I started to have these little inklings of, of thoughts about Corey that I honestly thought at this point, I started to think like, is he like an alien or some kind of other being who is, who's a threat to these people because he is not like them. And I think that's a credit to the actor portraying Corey because I I just was so I was so off put and creeped out by his performance and it's a performance of desperation basically and I I was really really digging it in this episode. So after Donlin demands that Corey takes him to Pearson's body, that's that's when the plot itself really started to ta- started to take off for me. And when they reach the spot and find that Pearson is gone, that's when I really wondered um, if aliens had gotten him. I, I really thought between Corey's um, demeanor and his the way that he was doing certain uh, – having certain mannerisms and he seemed a little bit off. Um, between that and just the setting of, of this kind of canyon-esque – kind of kind of environment that they shot in for where they found Pearson's body or, or where Pearson's body was supposed to be. I just got the sense that they were being watched and, and that, that Pearson was taken because he was, you know, uh, 
a human that he, that they could feast on or something like that. I thought that it was going to be that kind of story. And that scenario in my head was amplified by, um, by Corey's delivery of his line saying that I was so thirsty. It was just so unsettling to me to hear him say that, but I'm, I'm getting just a little bit ahead of myself because I do want to mention that, once once they find um, where Pearson's body was supposed to be, once they reach that destination, Donlin has this scene that he, he asks Corey, uh, did you do anything for him? And the way that he does this, it's like he's pleading so much. Like this scene is probably the highlight of the episode for me because um, he's pleading for Corey not because I, – I don't think that it's necessarily because he wants to find Pearson and save him or, or whatever – but he, it's like Donlin is pleading for Corey to have some humanity left in him, to, to search for some humanity within Corey. Um, and it's, it's just so kind of breathtaking the way that it's performed because you just hear so much pleading in Donlin's voice. And it's just, it's just amazing. That's when Corey's delivery of his line, I was so thirsty, that's when it just got me so unnerved because it comes at a point where Donlin is pleading with him to basically be human <laughs> with him and he just won't comply or won't um won't meet him halfway there it's it's really remarkable and again i was just really <laughs> at that point i was just really creeped out and just convinced that he was maybe an alien just really creepy really effective scene i really liked it so once they actually find pearson and they find that he's not fully dead. I just, I, I kind of like how the tension kind of ratchets up while being a little bit more mysterious because Pearson puts that, uh, the symbol on the ground. And at the time I, I kind of, I had an inkling that this episode was going to lead to them being on earth just because when, uh, back a couple years ago, when, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes came out, I was, I did a full review series of the Planet of the Apes franchise. And I remember reading when, um, when I watched Planet of the Apes, that it was, uh, I remember reading the similar similarities between this episode and that movie. So I kind of had an inkling in my mind that that was where this episode was heading. But again, that alien aspect of it was really kind of creeping up on me and making me think that, that they were going to be, you know, taken by aliens or something. So after they find Pearson's body and he dies, Donlin shortly thereafter is, is, taken out by Corey. And I really respected Donlin's death scene, if only because he went out telling Corey that Corey was insane. And I just, I just thought that that was a really good way for him to go out and a good way to kind of really hammer home again, um, how unstable Corey is. And I thought it was really effective. And I thought that, uh, the shot, showing after after Donlin died the shot showing that the uh that Corey had hit the canteen it just felt like some nice irony and felt like it was really befitting of the twilight zone and so maybe my favorite actual thing about this episode overall is that the logic of Corey's actions actually tracks pretty well if you view it from his perspective because he is in a situation where he knows that he is very near he, – he's very likely going to die because from his perspective, he is trapped on an asteroid with five gallons of water and th four people um, to share it with 
And I mean, that is a ridiculously low amount of water uh, to divvy up between four people, especially one who is dying and from Corey's perspective can't be helped with. And uh, like, I'm not, I'm not defending his actions, of course, because he's a murderer, but the actual logical progression of his arc throughout this entire episode follows really well because the character is uh, written so, so completely. And I, I really appreciated that about this episode. And also another thing, I mean, this was the second episode of the um, Twilight Zone, I believe, to be shot in Death Valley. And just the there are beautiful shots of of Death Valley, and it really captures the desolation of the characters' predicament and the isolation of 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 them. It's similar to the lonely in that they're isolated there, and just like um, uh, James Corey, actually, ironically, was isolated on on his. Uh, I think it was a comet. So I just I I really liked the environ the environment that the that it was shot in. And once again, I I think I mentioned this before, but the framing of the canyon they find Pearson in is just really eerie and it really makes you think they're being watched. And when when Pearson looks up and uh when Donlin is is asking him if he saw something in the mountains, like that's just really creepy because that just uh, like it sh- it switches to a shot of the of the mountain range or whatever you want to call it, um, and you see how high up it is, and it you see how far away it is, and it just I don't know, it just seems like man, that's there's something there, and it's going to just really blow our minds. And again, I keep I keep mentioning this, but it really made me think that they were being watched and that they were about to be that there was about to be some race of aliens that were going to capture them. As irrational as that sounds, that's what I kept coming back to, and it made me feel really unsettled, and it, it was really effective. And as for the actual ending, where Corey sees the power lines and the signs and realizes that he's on Earth, I thought that it was really effective. It was really a good, complete story, and while I kind of think that... I kind of wish that it would have been a more shocking thing for him because I think he has like a couple lines where he talks about the situation and everything. And and he kind of tells the audience like, Oh, we were on earth. Um, in so many words, if they had just cut that and just like had him just pleading, um, and, and, and apologizing to Pearson and and Donlin and, and really grasping the emotional weight of, of what he'd done. If they, if they had, just had that last scene that I think it would have been more impactful and more powerful um, for me at least. And before I actually forget, um, I really enjoyed the element of the story in which Corey is explaining to Donlin, basically he's, he's basically justifying his murder of his shipmates by saying that uh, I think the phrasing is, you were looking for morality in the wrong place. It really solidifies the character's motivation and the kind of morality tale that's being told here and the, the theme of the um, episode as a whole, which I kind of took it as being a dark and pessimistic look at human nature and at what people are capable of in confined scenarios without order or consequence. So by Corey's 
by Corey's perspective or in Corey's perspective, they're not governed by any human entity or government or ruler. They're not chained by law, essentially. And it seems like from Corey's perspective, that gives him license to just completely screw over his shipmates and murder them in cold blood all for the act of survival on his part. And I thought that, that was a really, really interesting angle to explore. And I'm really glad that they included that line of dialogue where Corey tells Donlin, um, it was after he murdered him, <laughs> that they were not in the real world anymore. That, that, that this is, that Donlin was sticking to, um, order or, order and rules and protocols and things like that when this was a kill or be killed scenario or kill or die scenario. And, and it, what makes it even more tragic, even, um, well, of course what makes it more tragic is that they were on earth the entire time and that they were within walking distance of, um, safety essentially and, and being able to survive. But what's, what's also really tragic about it is that, he was only he only killed Donlin and Pearson for basically the the amount of water that would have doubled his chances of survival. Like he says that one man or uh, three men can live for five days, and one man can live for or uh, two men can live for five days, one man can live for ten days. So they've already established that it takes four years to to build the rocket and send the rocket there. That's if Earth from their perspective, can find them and locate them. And it's just such a, a messed up, skewed perspective from Corey, and it's so chilling, really. Um, but again, the logic of his actions tracks well because he's in survival mode, and that's kind of the main thing about the episode itself. So, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So, um, before I get my final thoughts on this episode basically i have a a little bit of trivia here for you so the episode title i shot an arrow into the air was actually one that rod serling had considered for a screenplay that he wrote before the twilight zone uh came to being and that screenplay would actually later air in season three as the episode the gift um But previous to that, it was actually almost the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone. So that's kind of interesting um, that he pulled the title from that. Similar to Walking Distance, uh, in addition to the usual opening and closing narration, this episode features a rare bit of narration from Serling in the middle of the show, which occurs after Corey kills Donlin. And Serling kind of narrates Corey's walk through the desert wasteland after he kills Donlin and it kind of comes, comes across as <laughs> I, I really dug this about it, but it really comes across like Serling is kind of taunting Corey in this narration. And I, I really, really liked that. And I thought that it was a really good use of the rare, um, mid show narration from Serling, which apparently, um, we won't see again until season three. And, uh, once again, like the lonely, this episode was shot in death Valley, California And according to trivia, the production actually learned from the grueling conditions of the lonely. I think one of the, I think the DP on that episode actually collapsed in the middle of filming, but they learned from that experience shooting the lonely and they adjusted accordingly. Um, 
Producer Buck Houghton uh, said that explained at one point that they broke for lunch every day for two hours, and then they went back to the hotel to eat lunch, where they serve where they were served like light foods like salads um, by the pool. Um, so my closing thoughts on this episode of the Twilight Zone i i like I like how incidental this was. It this experience, this situation, um, this predicament that the that the space uh, that the astronauts were in, it's not an experiment and there's no supernatural power or being that's guiding things. This is a very grounded story. It may actually be the most grounded episode yet up there with the likes of the lonely somewhat and time enough at last in terms of nothing otherworldly happening or unexplainable, unexplainable happening. And it works very well. I, I really enjoyed this episode. I loved the, uh, character dynamics and the conflict that arose out of the situation. And it felt very genuine and very eerie and, and organic the way that the, each character kind of developed in their own way, particularly, particularly Donlin and Corey and their conflict between, between both of them was just really handled so well and, and developed so well. Um, and of course, that final twist at the end was was really pretty satisfying. I I enjoyed it quite a bit. So yeah, so that's my thoughts on I shot an arrow into the air. And before we move on to the bonus content for this episode, uh, here's a highlight from episode one sixty two of the Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer dot com. So they all have a vision of the future and like it, it played with some really interesting concepts for science fiction and all that. And man, if it just had the right staff and had the right people behind it, yep. it could have been so good. And you know, it, the first episode was really good. It was. I think it hooked a ton of people, including oh, yeah. me. I was like, this is the next loss. It's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that was at a time where everyone was like, is there going to be? Is this going to be the next loss? I think. Right. It, I think it started airing like while the last season was about to start airing. Something like that. Yeah. So it wasn't like like, oh, lost just ended. Let's fill it up with fill something else. But um, of course, you can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find this episode in particular that you heard a promo from at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov one sixty two. Okay, so I'm going to round out this episode with a pretty brief review of Planet of the Apes. Uh, it's a 1968 classic, of course. I, I watched it for the first time a couple years ago, first-ish time a couple years ago when I, uh, in preparation for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes coming out. And I was really blown away by how just amazing it was. <laughs> it's a really beautifully written movie and a beautifully shot movie as well. It's the prosthetics and the makeup effects and everything. Uh, for the apes in the movie was just astonishing for for its time and it it's it holds up incredibly well now and i love the conflict of of all the characters of and it's a timeless allegory of evolution versus faith and how um zealotry and ego shields reason um in the face of something that could be construed as irrevocable proof um, against a certain ideology or, or uh, mythology that, that's been established within your society. And I, I thought that, that that aspect of the 
movie was handled very well. I have some I have some loose notes here, but uh, there's something about Charlton Heston's performance, at least early on, that it's I don't I hesitate to say this, but it, it kind of seems like kind of movie star acting. <laughs> um, he's kind of he's a little bit mugging for the camera, just just a little bit from from my perspective. Maybe that was a sign of the the times or acting at the time, but I, I don't know something about it. Just kind of I don't know. It it didn't. It's not that it bothered me, but it was just something that stood out to me in, in this rewatch of it. Um, and when, when their ship is crashing in, in the beginning, just the aerial photography, photography, um, from the POV of the ship is just so great. It's, it's just really cool how, how they were able to, um, make you feel like you're crashing as well and beautiful location as well. I really appreciated that how, um, Taylor, which is Charlton Heston's character. I, I just loved his, his kind of progression through the movie. Like he starts out being kind of arrogant, a little, he's a little pragmatic. He's kind of a nihilist and he's, he's kind of goading these other characters. Um, I think particularly Landon, um, early on about basically really deep stuff. Like how, like, you know, everything, you know, is, is gone. Now we're thousands of years in the future. It's just, it's kind of arrogant and I guess adversarial. I feel like we needed, we kind of needed to be introduced to Taylor as kind of a prick because, I mean, later in the movie, he's kind of brought down a little bit. And I just love the concept of this movie, how there's basically, it's the reversal of of animals. Humans are animals and the animals are humans. I I thought that that was really effective and, and pretty creepy. And also deep down, it's, it's kind of a, it's such an interesting look at humanity by, by relegating humanity to this feral, animalistic, instinctual, predatory, uh, creature, essentially like, like Dr. Zaius, um, kind of the religious zealot of the movie. He, there's, there's some dialogue late late in the movie that you can tell that his reticence or his, his fear of humans is born from these sacred skull scrolls. And it's, it's a fear of what man is capable of. And I mean, that's kind of a big reveal. I hope I didn't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, it's just, it's really powerful that, that sequence. And of course the ending is iconic and it's something that um, at this point, everyone knows about and everything. Um, and it's just, it's really effective. And I know I've, I know I've brought this up several times in the past over, over the past several, um, podcasts and everything, but, um, I did get a chance to see this on the big screen, uh, a 35 millimeter print of it at the art craft theater in Franklin, Indiana. They screened it as part of their sci-fi frenzy last October. And my God, being in a packed theater, um, with people watching this, this movie and like hearing just an eruption of cheers as, as Charlton Heston delivers his iconic, uh, take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape, his iconic line of that, just hearing cheers erupt from the audience was just such an incredible movie theater experience. So if there's, if there's a screening of this movie, um, near you, I highly recommend checking, checking it out on the big screen. Cause it's, it's really a spectacular experience. 
I don't know what parts of the movie are Sterling's input, and I don't know how separate it is from the book, nor do I know how much uh, Michael Wilson uh, incorporated into his script, aside from the the trial scene, which I thought was a very, very uh, effective, the, probably the high point of the movie for me. Um, so I don't know all of those details. I just know that this movie is amazing, and the sequels, some of the sequels aren't really that uh strong i mean there are some good ones there i I wrote a whole review of all of them um over at obsessiveviewer.com i'll put a link to that in the show notes the page for that um but i mean the original planet of the apes you can't really you can't really match it or beat it um i think what they've done recently with rise of the planet of the apes and dawn of the planet of the apes in particular um i think they are on the right track to be the best sequels or the best part of the franchise aside from the original, but I'm not sure that they'll ever top the original because it is, it's really, it's really well done and really, really good. So I think that will about do it for this week's episode of anthology. Uh, let's see. Next week is going to be kind of unique because next week, Next week is episode 16, uh, The Hitchhiker, and I think the bonus review for that is going to be a little unique in that uh, basically The Hitchhiker is the first and only episode of The Twilight Zone to be adapted from a radio play, so I think I'm going to do something unique with that aspect of it, Um, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, so once again, you can, uh, you know where to contact me and everything. I'll have the pre-record outro here or there, but here or there. Wow. I just got done recording an episode of Obsessive Viewer before I recorded this. That may have been a mistake. I'm a little tired. But anyway, um, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious... Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.